Here with us today is Donald Raymond Schmidt, best-selling author, former director for J. Ellen Hynek and leading Roswell expert. Welcome, Donald. What a pleasure to be with all of you today. Thank you. Thank you. So today we want to talk a little bit about Roswell. My knowledge about Roswell is pretty basic, although yeah. I know a little bit, but that's where you're here for. So the Roswell case has been under discussion for so many years now and last, has lost yes. none of its fascination. Again no. and again, we read no. about new informations, new witness reports, and you yourself have spoken with many of these witnesses. We'll talk about that in a moment. But first, I would like to know a little bit about what brought you to where you are now. Maybe let's start at the beginning. Were there in your childhood, perhaps, in the parental home, already points of contact to the UFO topic or extraterrestrial life? Actually, no. In fact, um, I became fascinated, intrigued by the subject already in my middle school years. And, and through high school, I would write up reports for my English classes on UFOs. And the teachers were impressed because I was so knowledgeable on the subject. Well, I took that to heart. And then through college, I went through specific training in forensics, pathology. Um, I have two degrees in art. So as a result, I started to work with Dr. J. Allen Hynek, almost on the order as a police artist that I was illustrating. I was recreating eyewitness accounts. And I would become one of his special investigators. Now, we're talking about J. Allen Hynek, who was the consultant to the uh, United States Air Force Project Blue Book for 20 years. And uh, we've all seen the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And that was his movie, though that was one of his classifications, third kind being UFOs with occupants being observed, that type of thing. And then when he founded the Center for UFO Studies, and I came on with him years thereafter, I then became his director of special investigations. I served on his board of directors for 10 years. And through all of that, I was a skeptic. I was explaining away cases that Heineck was leaning towards accepting. And that's what he loved about our working relationship that I always came in with a very hard-nosed attitude as to, well, there still has to be an explanation, an alternative. And that became the reason that we went after potentially what was the biggest UFO story of, the, of all time? And that being the thought that there was an actual crash retrieval that the United States government has in its possession the actual remains of a flying saucer, to use that term. And we thought we'd make a single weekend jaunt down to you know, New Mexico and prove that this was nothing more than a weather balloon device as the government here still maintains, or something just as prosaic, just as conventional. And here we are all these years later, I've had now seven best-selling books. We've, we started the museum in Roswell, which is now attracting its five millionth visitor. 
I'm in the process of leading my sixth archaeological dig to the crash site, still looking for physical artifacts, remnants of the crash. But what I'm personally most proud of is the fact that we tracked down and interviewed over 600 witnesses, either directly or indirectly involved with what happened back in 1947. And now we're talking to the families. We're getting more and more deathbed testimonies. And so the hunt continues, but I can assure all of you, none of the witnesses have ever described anything conventional. None of the witnesses have ever described weather balloons or wooden crash dummies. They are all stating to their deathbeds, which are admissible in a court of law here in America. But they're saying it did happen. It was the genuine crash and recovery of an actual craft of unknown origin. It's, it's very interesting. Let's talk about some, let's talk about the witnesses. What kind of witnesses were you dealing with? And how do you distinguish whether the witness is credible or not? Of course, good question. Um, one of the wonderful aids that we had from the very beginning was we had the Roswell Army Airfield yearbook from that particular time. And I need to emphasize that Roswell, the Roswell Army Airfield in 1947 was the headquarters of the first atomic bomb squadron in the world. They were the elite within the military, the US military at that time. They, they selected the best officers, the best pilots, crew, doctors, nurses. They were all stationed there at the time that this crash took place. And so the question, even their perspective, their observational capacity, their training, no, 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 we're already talking about the best. And with the yearbook, we were able to focus on specific units and we tracked down hundreds of these former base personnel. And then we had city directories from Roswell. So we were able to go back and track down all the residents who formerly lived there, who maybe had moved maybe to New York or Florida or Texas for that matter. And so we were always making that our number one priority because we always realized we were racing with the undertaker, so to speak, that time was running out for us. And so when we had a lead on a witness, well, obviously the first thing we do is see if they're in the yearbook, see if they were there in 1947. And if they were a civilian, let's check this, uh, the city directory. Let's see indeed if they were at the scene of the crime as we like to put it, so to speak. And so that's the beginning. First you establish their presence and then you check out their backgrounds. And we're talking all the way up to two-star generals that we have on the record who told us, even in sworn statements, sworn affidavits, that this did happen. In other words, we could take this into a court of law. And as we have had judges, we have had attorneys tell us, we would win this hands down because we have the preponderance of eyewitness testimony all the way up to general officers. And then all the civilian witnesses who are describing the exact same situation. And then the media, the press too were involved. So 
they're even anecdotally, the idea that, well, you only have their testimony, but that's what history is made of, eyewitness testimony. But when they all come together, when they, they do not contradict one another, and they're describing the same incident, you take note, and I can assure all of you, after that first trip to New Mexico, we couldn't get back down there fast enough, because it's like, what if we're wrong in our armchair perspective? In other words, that we are skeptical only because we choose to be. But let's, let's go where the evidence leads us, no matter where it leads us. And we investigated as, as well. We paralleled with all the alternative explanations. I mean, we looked into even a Japanese atomic bomb as a possibility. Nothing was off the table because extraterrestrial would still surpass, surpass all of that. So we were looking for anything earthly we could. And everything has fallen short. I can assure all of you, I went from a total skeptic to where now I'm 99.9% .9 convinced, just as all the eyewitnesses have stated that it did happen. Yeah. Um I can imagine, and maybe this might be an odd question, but I can imagine that with such a hot topic like Roswell, a lot of misinformation is spread on purpose too. Did you have the chance to uncover fake witnesses? Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, in fact, even at the time that this took place, and if you will recall, it was the Roswell Army Airfield who had actually put out that press release where they claimed They had captured a flying saucer. And five hours later, there was a press conference, not in Roswell, but going up the chain of command with General Roger Ramey, head of the 8th Air Force, which commanded the 509th Bomb Wing in Roswell, the first atomic bomb squadron. And they explained it all away as a weather balloon with a radar reflector kite, you know, off the shelf material that a five-year-old child would have recognized. But yet we're still led to believe that the people in charge of the atomic bomb couldn't recognize rubber and foil and wooden sticks and string and tape. And so in, you, you put together the chronology of, of events and you, you see that you possess a storyline, a storyboard, so to speak of what to anticipate, how the eyewitnesses then as they're located fit in, in what capacity, in what capacity were, at the, were they at the base? Were they in a specific squadron, for example, that was part of the recovery operation? There were multiple flights transporting wreckage, even bodies. I can tell you exactly the aircraft and the crew the pilots who were on the two body flights. And if somebody comes along and tells us, no, 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 I was on a body flight and it was this particular plane, they're disqualified because we've already determined what personnel, what aircraft were involved with what aspect. And we honestly have found that most of the witnesses have been very reluctant to speak with us. We had to find them. 
Nobody ever got on the phone and called us up and said, oh, by the way, you forgot about me. You never talked to me. And let me tell you what happened back in 1947. That's an immediate red flag. That's somebody who's looking for attention. Yes. These people, these witnesses, the legitimate ones, have always been totally reluctant to talk. They were still honoring their security oaths. They had been sworn to secrecy. Civilians had been threatened never to say another word about it. We had to gain their confidence and we had to demonstrate to them that there was power in numbers, that the more people that they joined in telling the truth, then the truth protects them. Whereas you, when, you, when you, you, you remain in the shadows, when you remain anonymous, something happens to you, nobody puts two and two together. They don't figure out that, well, maybe you were you know, gonna speak out about something very top secret and then you, you wind up having a car accident, that type of thing. Yeah. So even at the time of the incident, the, the, the uh, military was claiming they were recovering weather balloons all around Roswell. And so it was planting all these fake stories to try to flood you know, the media with all these distractions and them finally giving up and saying, well, we don't know what to believe any longer. So it's classic uh, military uh, subterfuge where they just flood you know, a lot of disinformation to cover up the true event.